Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade. Episode 5. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me. Every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud. February the 26th, 1917. Message from the chief. The paper was nearly deprived of its proprietor last night, which will be a source of mixed feelings among the staff. At 11.30, my house was lit up by 20 star shells from the sea, so that the place was illuminated as if by lightning. Shrapnel burst all over the place, some of it killing a poor woman and baby within 50 yards of my home and badly wounding two others, some of it hitting the library in which these notes are prepared every day. The bombardment lasted from six to 10 minutes, according to various estimates, and was the result of a raid by a destroyer three miles out. The authorities have no doubt that my house was the specific target. And if they're right, one has to say that the shooting was rather good. Kurt Rietzler, Berlin. Bloody idiocy with Mexico. Whether the information had remained secret or not, it would have been better to leave America alone. Washington. February 27th, 1917. Colonel House. Dear Governor, I was not surprised by Zimmerman's dispatch concerning Mexico. I have been convinced for some time that, in anticipation of hostilities with us, Germany has laid plans to stir up all the trouble she can in order to occupy our attention. I hope you will publish the dispatch tomorrow. It will make a profound impression both on Congress and on the country. London. We wait and see. The American Embassy. At first, the interceptor telegram is thought to be a hoax, too good to be true. Then Zimmerman himself admits it's genuine. Still, we wait, we wait, and we wait. The president isn't quite ready yet. We're not at war. We're at a stage of armed neutrality. He seeks powers to arm merchant ships. Mm, that's something. Washington, the White House. Though the bill was defeated by a Senate filibuster, the Attorney General has ruled that the President has the power to arm our merchant ships without authorization from Congress. This evening, to amuse Woodrow, I suggested a session at the Ouija board. And who from the spirit world should present himself but Admiral Lord Nelson, declaring that he wished to discuss submarine warfare. Everything he said on the topic seemed entirely sensible. The Embassy of the United States of America, London, March 9. Dear House, I find that the continued delay in sending out American ships, especially American liners, is producing an increasingly unfavorable impression here. It has been taken to mean that our government 
has submitted to the German blockade. Since the reasons for the delay are regarded as mere technicalities, which a national crisis should sweep aside. British opinion, indeed, seems to be reaching the conclusion that our government will be unable to act positively under any provocation whatsoever, and that it will maintain its inertia long enough for the Zimmerman telegram and the blockade of our ships to be dismissed from our minds. Long enough for the British Navy to do the job of overcoming the German submarines unassisted. Washington. Dear Page, the President, I believe, needs delay in order to assure himself absolutely that there is no alternative to war, since what he is about to undertake is a violation of everything that is sacred to his political faith. I myself am not unhappy about delay, since it gives us more time for naval and military preparation. Essentially, it seems to me, we are already at war with Germany, but a formal declaration may not occur until Congress meets on April 2nd, when it will consider grave questions of national policy. Berlin. Count von Bernstorff. Now that I've returned to Germany, I can't help but feel that those of us who are living in America formed a much clearer notion of the true state of my country than those who've been here all this while, cut off from the rest of the world by the English blockade. When I was in America, I found it hard to understand why the imperial government didn't snatch with joy at the chance of peace. Back in Germany, and having seen the country's desperate condition, I find it even harder. Is Woodrow expecting you? Yes, uh, I telegraphed yesterday. Didn't I admit wait for a reply? The urgency of things, you know. His cabinet finished? Yes, and Woodrow isn't well, has a headache. There's reason enough for that. Oh, you have no idea, Mr. House, how he struggled. Night after night, desperately looking for some other way, asking over and over, what else can I do? What else can I do? There's nothing else he can do. And there's no point in looking for some other way. No other way is possible. Colonel House. Mrs. Wilson, what awaits him now? It's daunting, but not as difficult as he might imagine. He took a gamble, and he lost. Now it's war, and it's our duty to fight it as well as we can. March 27th, 1917. Meeting with the President. He wondered whether he should ask Congress to declare war or state that war already exists and request the necessary means to carry it through, I advise the latter option. If he puts a declaration of war up to Congress, there might well be an acrimonious debate. I then told him how anxious I was that as a war president, he should meet the challenges in a creditable way so that when the conflict's over, his reputation and influence are not reduced and he's able to do the great work that will follow. I took the liberty to suggest to him that he might not be well suited to the immediate task, too refined, too civilized, too intellectual, too cultivated, 
It needs a man of coarser fiber, someone less of a philosopher, to conduct a brutal, vigorous, successful war. He agreed. March 30th. Perfect weather, but Woodrow felt that he must work on his message to Congress. So we closed the door and gave orders that no one was to disturb him. We lunched alone. London. My accusation is this. The American embassy. He soothed the American people, encouraged them to be supine, sat them down in comfortable chairs and said, just stay there. March 31st. Woodrow has continued work on his war message. As usual, a draft in shorthand, then correcting it in a combination of shorthand and longhand, then making a fair copy on his typewriter. Meanwhile, I lightened the workload by decoding some cipher messages that had come in. To the belligerence, he was offensively condescending, conceived a vision of himself as president peacemaker. But now, at last, he's been pushed into action. Now, his big idea will be to show how he led the people into a glorious war in defense of democracy. The plain truth is, this whole wretched business has been a catalog of errors. April 1st. The message is finished. This is a man who likes to shut himself away, engage in what he calls thought. The air currents of the world never ventilate his mind, and he maintains his inactive position for as long as public sentiment allows. He's not a leader, he's not a peacemaker, he's a stubborn phrase-maker. April 2nd. Congress convened at 12 noon. When we reached the Capitol, the crowd outside was almost as large as on Inauguration Day. In the gallery, every seat was taken. Woodrow came in. Everyone rose to their feet, and my heart seemed to stop beating. He delivered the speech. There was utter silence until he pronounced the words, We will not choose the path of submission. Whereupon Chief Justice White, an ex-Confederate soldier, got up and cheered. The response from the floor and the galleries was deafening. The Daily Mail, the paper that says no, no peace with the Hohenzollerns. April the 7th, Huns rush to naturalize. In New York alone, where the mayor has issued a proclamation emphasizing the fact that the penalty for treason is death, 18,000 Germans are seeking to become naturalized Americans. An additional and amusing result of the state of war was the sale of property owned by Herr Bateman Holberg in Waco, Texas. The German chancellor invested in this property some years ago. Americans adore David. He's speaking at the American Luncheon Club on Thursday to celebrate the country's involvement in the war. 
the club's management are full of excitement that David is to be their guest. Lloyd George has a bigger sound in America than Prime Minister, one of them said. Lloyd George is a man who gets the job done, and that means everything to America. The Foreign Office. Balfour! Page! Let me shake you by the hand. <laughs> a momentous day for the world. Yes, and it's been a long time coming. I feel, you know, as if a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And of course, you've played your part. I don't know how. Ah, the Zimmerman telegram. Ah, yes. You might have kept it to yourself for even longer than you did. Indeed, yes, I might. <laughs> but now, Balfour, we must think about other ways in which we can be of help to each other. Yes. Practicalities. Exactly. You know... Over all these months and years, I never for one moment doubted the President's wisdom in the course he was pursuing. Good Lord, do you not? I was never uncertain either of the American people's loyalty to their government, their high ideals. That's good to know. Well then, practicalities. Well, it's a source of regret, I have to say, that the British seem to be so very unpopular in your country. Mm. Why is this, do you suppose? Well, if you're right, there might be various reasons. Oh. One of them, perhaps one, will do. It might. Is that the top people on both sides steadfastly refuse to visit one another and get acquainted. Oh. You've never gone to the States. No. no not that is in an official capacity. Nor has Lloyd George. There isn't a single member of the British government who's known on a personal basis to a single member of the U.S. administration. Well, now, what about a British delegation to America? Strengthen ties and so on. Mm. That would be a useful first move, would it not? Uh -huh. By way of helping each other, a practicality. Excellent idea. You'd go, I hope. Oh, uh, yes, I'd... Uh, yes, I'd go. If the President were agreeable... Washington, Colonel House. Dear Governor, I enclose a cable which has come from Balfour's confidential secretary. Balfour possesses considerable intellect, and I trust him implicitly. He's one of the most influential men in the British Empire, and being in personal touch with him would greatly increase your prestige. It might be suggested that the mission should be announced as diplomatic rather than military. Although, in a fashion, I volunteered for this undertaking, I can't say that I look forward to it with much pleasure. Despite my time as First Lord of the Admiralty, I'm an abominable sailor. And I'm travelling on RMS Olympic, sister ship off the Titanic, which doesn't bode well at all. But these days we do what we must, not what we like. I'll go. April 22nd, 1917. I joined Balfour's train at Pennsylvania Station and traveled with him to Washington. And how's the voyage? Not at all bad. After the first day, I managed to find my sea legs, which I didn't know I possessed. There were no submarines, we didn't sink. I'd be given an India rubber life-preserving suit in case of disaster. <laughs> but I decided that I prefer to drown in my nightshirt. <laughs> 
So, Balfour. Yes. Speak, please. There's a distinct impression here that your country and mine are about to commit ourselves to a secret alliance. Ah. The inevitable, I suppose. The impression, I mean. It might be advisable, therefore, to deny the possibility of any sort of agreement and to minimize the importance of your visit, as far as that's possible, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. Very sensible. And Balfour, the sort of peace which would be the best for your country would be a peace that was best for all the nations of the world, whether they be small or large. Yes, oh yes, most certainly, but... Avoid the discussion of peace terms now, and your country and mine, sooner or later, sooner, we hope, will be able to dictate terms which are broad and generous rather than small or selfish. Terms that will mean permanent peace. But... Such an achievement might well be one of the greatest events in the history of mankind. Yes. Well? Any settlement must remove the evil conditions that precipitated the war. It must entail a revision of the map of Europe. Expulsion of the barbaric Turkish government. Abolition of the German military machine. Hmm. If Germany's power is left unimpaired in the midst of a weak, exhausted Europe, the situation will be even less secure than it was before the war began. Discussions, events. None, I try to insist, before 11 a.m. A visit to George Washington's home, an honorary doctorate, dinners without number, a speech in Congress, after which the President came down to the floor of the chamber and shook my hand. Something like this, I gather, has never happened before. All has gone splendidly. I'm in the pink. As for my private conversation with the President himself, I made sure, of course, that I referred to Britain's dire financial situation, the food supply, and the need for arms. The Times, April the 25th. Regarding Mr. Balfour, the appetite of the public for information is apparently insatiable. Demands for articles and interviews come from the most out-of-the-way places. The Balfour stoop, his head, hair, face, Voice, gait, frock coat, collar, tie, shoes, all are described in meticulous detail. The news is given with great zest that Mr. Balfour, like President Wilson, is a great reader of detective novels and shilling shockers. Some newspapers go as far as to publish accounts of his conversation with the President. All of these, one needs not point out, are apocryphal. Washington, Colonel House. The president is less than happy. He informs me that he talked with Balfour about war aims between the United States and the Allies, told him that he's anxious to settle the matter now that we're entering the war, but received from Balfour insufficient clarification on the subject. Altogether, he says, the meeting was unsatisfactory. I am to invite Balfour to have dinner at the White House. That's very kind of him, very kind. He'd like, in particular, to talk about peace terms. Ah. I won't say I endorse the notion. No. But the President thinks it would be a pity if you went home without the subject being discussed. Yes. There can be no harm in it, perhaps. As long as you understand that the conversation will in no way be official, 
Also, he'd like you and me to consider the general problem of war aims. Very well. It might be argued that America should have known what her aims were going to be before she entered the war. It might indeed. But the business is somewhat complicated. Allied hopes and intentions. Does America fight for these or not? If we don't like them, what are we to do? Fight a separate war against Germany? I'm also instructed to ask you about the secret treaties. Ah, yes. So, war aims. Where to begin? Shall we work on the assumption that Germany is decisively defeated? Or that there's a stalemate, a partial defeat at best? Let's go for option one. Good. Good. Well, then, forgive me. Our discussion, I think, will be made easier if we have recourse to my map. Do join me. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, France and Belgium are restored. Yes. Alsace and Lorraine go to France. That will rankle. Poland's boundaries there, penciled in, as you see. I'd rather like a Poland that's big and powerful, a buffer between Germany and Russia. Yes, but then if Germany were to invade France again, Russia would find it hard to come to France's aid, do you see? I do. Though you must beware of thinking that Germany will be the enemy for all time. In 50 years from now, who knows? Russia might offer the greatest threat. No, I think not. But there's no point us putting money on it. Uh, to continue, Austria returns Bosnia and Herzegovina to Serbia. Serbia gives to Bulgaria the part of Macedonia that the first Balkan agreement gave her. Here. Romania takes a small part of Russia, where there are Romanians, and a part of Hungary likewise. Now, Italy... Apologies for interrupting, but I may take it... May I? that the Allies have come to various agreements on such matters amongst themselves. There are obligations, understandings... Secret treaties. Exactly. Yes? Yes. Essentially, a private division of the spoils. Yes, unfortunately, I know. Chopping up the bear skin before the bear's been killed, it doesn't look good. It's worse than that. It's creating a breeding ground for future wars. Perhaps the Allies should give copies of these secret treaties to the President. On the assumption, of course, that he'd keep, keep them... Keep them secret, yes. Perfectly reasonable request. If they haven't come with us, I'll send for them. I ought to say, when it comes to peace conference discussions, America, in my view, should steer clear of promises that the Allies have made. We need to do all we can to resist an improper distribution of territory. If we're to justify our participation in the war, we must free ourselves from greed pettiness, selfishness. We must look at the matter broadly from a world viewpoint. Oh, yes, absolutely. May I continue? April 30th, 1917. The President, Balfour, and I took our coffee in the Oval Sitting Room and then went to the President's study. Balfour made a statement regarding the need for trained American troops some to come over immediately, others perhaps in August or September. But it was the president who did most of the talking. He was keyed up, having rested most of the afternoon and gone without his usual exercise. We covered the same ground that Balfour and I had explored on Saturday, and I acted as steersman 
attempting to ensure that the conversation embraced much of what Balfour had said to me and what the President and I had agreed in previous discussions. The question of the secret treaties was raised. Balfour admitted to the President, by way of imparting a secret about such secrets, that they did indeed exist, but this very delicate business, as Balfour put it, was not examined in detail. The main inquiry related to the most satisfactory settlement that could be arranged in order to achieve peace. After the meeting, I walked downstairs with Balfour and asked if he felt that his thinking had coincided with the President's at all points. He replied that he had never had a more interesting conference and spoke of the President as having a wonderful combination of philosophy and political wisdom. Would it be indiscreet of me, House, to ask how you manage with the French delegation? If the question is at all improper, I'll answer in like fashion. There's been very little satisfaction in talking to the French. For one thing, when they talk back, they don't talk English. <laughs> and unlike your good self, they have no authority. And their only reason for being here seems to be to describe their country's pressing needs and to say how delighted they are that we've entered the war. Yes. The president, I'm aware, is interested more in the longer view than the exigencies of the present. Americans will be fighting not for their lives, but for democracy. You are arbitrators rather more than allies, etc., etc. And nevertheless, I wouldn't care to return home without having made myself abundantly clear. Clearer, perhaps, than the French delegation. The situation is grim. Things are going Germany's way. We need help immediately. Without such help, your president's long-term aspirations may very quickly be in ruins. You understand as much, of course. London. 10 Downing Street. David was rather depressed last night. Northcliffe had been to see him and told him that this government is even more unpopular than the last. The truth is, David does things without consulting Northcliffe or paying any heed to him, and this rather riles the great man. Lord Northcliffe is unscrupulous. He's dangerous, in spite of, or perhaps because of, his very smooth exterior. David shouldn't have too much to do with him. He isn't to be trusted. The War Cabinet has decided that there should be some system of maintaining liaison with the American government and coordinating the work of various British departments in the States that deal with shipping, food supply, munitions, and so on. The British War Mission, it's to be called, and it needs someone to be its head. And I've been told that I'm a very suitable person for the appointment. Lloyd George, if you want the truth, tried to send me to Washington several weeks ago. Wanted me to be ambassador, but I refused. And now he's trying again. Really important job, vital for our national fortunes. Needs someone with aggressive energy and self-assertion. A stirrer up, someone also who's been to America a few times, or 21, actually. Enough to realize that America takes a great deal of name. And for that matter, I've made several trips to the battlefront. And I reply to LG, I'm too old for new work, too many enemies, especially among Germans living in the States. Churchill should go. He's young, 
half American, a picturesque figure. And also, what I've achieved here has been by means of the press. In the States, I'll be without my source of power and influence. Power and influence. Hmm, yes. Does Lloyd George simply want to get rid of me? Remove me? Put an end for a while to my troublesome, unruly interfering? Almost certainly. On the other hand, whatever LG's intention, the work will be of great importance for my country. Who knows what I might accomplish, even without my newspapers. Kurt Rietzler, Berlin. When the Chancellor attempts to enlighten the Kaiser and Supreme Army Command and force them to admit that the war hasn't been won, the provincial lunatics inevitably declare that he's caving in. The situation is desperate. Somehow, the Chancellor must raise the people from the newspaper cliches to the level of reality. <clears throat> Message from the Chief. I am leaving to take over Mr. Balfour's American mission. And it is essential that not one line of criticism of the United States should appear anywhere in the Daily Mail, the Continental Daily Mail, the Overseas Mail, or any other associated publication. In the meantime, farewell. The American Embassy, London. War will invigorate us. It will wake us up and shake us up. We need this war just as much as the Germans need taking down. War will end our isolation. It will make us less promiscuously hospitable to every kind of immigrant. It will re-establish our true heritage. It will revive our manhood. It will make us a great seafaring nation, like Britain. Five or ten years from now, or sooner, alas, the dead will be forgotten. The suffering will be a mere memory. The fields will recover their bloom, and life for many will go on much as before. But America can learn from the war become greater, stronger. We can cultivate those manly qualities required in wartime. We can resolve to be true to our traditions and ancestry. We can free ourselves from our isolationist, landlubberish thinking. Build ships, 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 and more ships, and still more. Troop ships, food ships, munition ships, auxiliary ships, wooden ships, steel ships, little ships, big ships, ships without number. We can sail them to the ends of the oceans and dominate the world, both in trade and in political ideology. But as well as ships, as well as expeditionary forces and loans to the Allies at a low rate of interest, we must make the moral issue clear. We speak of the wrongs that have been done to us, but injury has also been done to our ideals. If we value democracy in the world, this is the chance to further it. No more dreams about peace and conferences and leagues for the enforcing of peace and other intellectual diversions. This is war, and we must fight it.
in earnest. Johnny, show the hun you're a son of a gun. Hoist the flag and let her fly. Yankee doodle, do or die. Pack your little kit, show your grit, do your bit. Yankees to the ranks, from the towns and the tanks. Make your mother proud of you and the old red, white and blue. Over there. final episode of Enter the Peace Broker by Martin Wade, Lord Northcliffe was played by Henry Goodman, Arthur James Balfour by Tim Woodward, Francis Stevenson by Tuppence Middleton, Colonel House by Nathan Osgood, Walter Hines Page by William Hope, Edith Bowling Wilson by Laurel Lefko, Kurt Riesler by Gunnar Cawthry, and Count von Bernstorff by Chris Pavlo. Enter the Peace Broker is a Chrome Radio production. It was directed by Elizabeth Rigby, with sound design by David Chilton, songs performed by Jessica Walker, with James Holmes on piano. The script consultant was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, and the producer was Katriana Oliphant. With thanks to the Rothmere Foundation for making this production possible. <laughs>